Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Eric Helms, who is a uh, professional natural bodybuilder, coach at 3DMJ, and a pillar in the science community in terms of hypertrophy right now. Thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. And I think that's the first time I've been introduced as a pillar. I'm kind of hoping I'm a little more of like a V-tapered pillar. I know that's not very good for structural support of uh, you know, buildings, but it looks more aesthetic. So honored <laughs> to be here. Honored to be here. <laughs> and now that I have you on air, I was hoping to bring up a number of rumors that have been around in terms of your true identity. And I just wanted to ask you, Eric, is it true that you are indeed Captain America? See, I wasn't sure where you're going to go with this. I often get asked, is it true that I'm actually the same person as Eric Trexler? Um, so this this is this is a different take am i captain america um you know i think it would be difficult to claim that title given that i live in new zealand so um you know people suggest uh that i look like chris evans i think it's more accurate to say that chris evans looks like me so chris if you're out there listening you're welcome um but uh but yeah i uh i always uh say hey we'll let the internet decide you know there's pictures where they've exchanged our faces. Can you tell the difference? I can't. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> all right. So today we're going to be talking all about periodization and the organization of different training variables for hypertrophy. And we're, we'll be talking about things from the stance of someone who is very serious about getting the optimal result. So just to start us off, I think this is going to be important for the discussion. Eric, how do you like to um, define different periods of time or units of time in the training year? For sure. Yeah. So, so you know, generally when people talk about uh, the periods within periodization, they mean microcycles, mesocycles, and macrocycles. Um, and there are some standardized time units that go along with those. But if you look at a lot of the periodization research out there, it probably makes more sense to adapt them to the specific demands of the athletes you're working with. So a lot of the times for, if we're talking about competitive bodybuilders, a macro cycle, which is to kind of go back to this terminology in general, the macro cycle is the overall training plan, which encompasses a long period. So if that was an Olympic athlete preparing for the Olympics, they might actually think about a four year block uh, if it's someone training for world championships in a non-Olympic sport, or they're not going to Olympics, that might be a year. Um, within that, you're dividing different phases up into mesocycles. Uh, and then within that, every typically like a week would be a microcycle. Um, so for the most part, the mesocycle and microcycle conventions tend to work across sports, um, but the macrocycles change. And I think the way I operate with competitive bodybuilders to go back to the sentence I originally started uh, is I kind of think about the off season and then prep as, as relatively distinct macro cycles. Um, and then, you know, through that, we have a bunch of, a bunch of different mesocycles that have a uh, different focus and, you know, we, and then they have within them microcycles and those microcycles are typically a week long. I find that's just a nice, easy convention that lines up with, with most people's schedules and the mesocycles um, those tend to last a little more individual based in, in the way I do things, but there's not like a rule here. Uh, they could be three weeks, they could be eight weeks. Um, but generally what this, what makes this mesocycle distinct from another mesocycle is they have a different focus. 
Um, I will often bridge them with, with deloads or introductory weeks, depending on if we're moving from high volume to low volume or from high intensity to moderate intensity or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but sometimes I might have an intra-mesocycle deload just to kind of manage fatigue, but the focus remains the same. So anyway, that's a, a relatively long answer to a short question. If I wanted to really cop out and just give you the fast answer, it'd be like one week, four weeks, and then a whole training period that is sport dependent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. And I guess getting right into it, I would like to talk about uh, the manipulation of different variables within these different sort of time frames. So I think starting off going from short to long, what are your thoughts on the manipulation of different training variables within the training week or perhaps the training microcycle as some people might define it in terms of things like rep ranges, um, intensity and volume? Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah. So th this is where we can start to kind of paint the picture of what are our, what are our constraints. And since we are talking about bodybuilding, uh, that means the research on hypertrophy is going to be most important for us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the things that have shaken out that we are pretty confident in, uh, because believe it or not, the, the study of periodization models is pretty shaky. It's not great. A lot of, there's a ton of periodization theorists who will promote one model or another, but these models are essentially the uh, the logistical application of principles. So I wouldn't want to just be like, hey, let's talk about block versus daily undulating. It makes a lot more sense to go back to, okay, what do we actually know about the principles for training for these different goals? So if we're talking about training for bodybuilding, some, some interesting data has come out over the years. For one, we know that uh, the rep range is only important to a point uh, that such that a, a given set, if it's of a, a similar proximity to failure, is probably going to be similar, similarly stimulative in a vacuum uh, if it's relatively low reps or relatively high reps. And there are some caps on that to some degree, mm -hmm. but you, I, I'm confident saying anywhere from like 6 to 25 or 30 reps is a similar proximity to failure on a per set basis or the simil similar stimulus for hypertrophy, gross hypertrophy, uh, even though you will have very different adaptations as far as muscular endurance or strength. And that's kind of the nature of the way hypertrophy is developed. Mm -hmm. So for one, we, we can start with some kind of rep range that's in that range. Uh, the second aspect of that that I mentioned was that proximity to failure. Um, we'll often quantify proximity to failure by raw repetitions in reserve, if that's someone's preference, or it can be attached to an RPE scale. So mm -hmm. the repetitions in reserve based RPE scale. Uh, which means a 10 is the most reps you could do in a given set. But we'll just use RIR just for simplicity. Um, there's a reasonable case to be made that if you're too far from failure, you're not actually tapping into all the muscle fibers, uh, that they're all not getting recruited, especially in high repetition sets. And there's some data to back this up. If you were to do a set of 20, um, the first 10 to 12 reps are primarily there to create fatigue, and, and that fatigue then allows for the recruitment of higher threshold motor units and eventually recruiting and training all fibers. So that means we need to be somewhere reasonably close to failure. Uh, most of the time that's going to be like zero to four RIR, depending on the goal of the block, where you're starting, the movement, et cetera, and, and arguably the load on the bar. You know, if you were to put 80% of one RM on the bar, that's heavy enough that you might not need to be as concerned uh, with, with RPE because you're probably only going to get eight reps anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, proximity to failure, 
and repetition range are, are the things that we need to think about on an individual set basis. There are, of course, other variables. So we don't really need to discuss load in so much as that's kind of covered in the RPE and rep ranges. Uh, but we do need to think about, like you said, frequency, volume, uh, and, and, and a few other factors like exercise selection. So if we're a bodybuilder, um, that means we care about proportionate hypertrophy. So we need to not have like a sports specific focus on hypertrophy, where like a power lifter would probably primarily be seeking to hypertrophy their quads, glutes, uh, lumbar, pecs, triceps, and doesn't really care, you know, if their biceps or calves are, are looking juicy. Um, mm -hmm. But we need all that juiciness as bodybuilders. So that means we need to have uh, a lot more exercise variety. And we understand uh, from, from some data that more exercise variety tends to produce more proportionate and greater amounts of hypertrophy than having a very narrow number of exercises. That doesn't mean your chest A needs to do inclined flat, uh, you know, like dips, flies, and 10 other exercises, or that you even need to have a chest day on that, on that point. Uh, mm -hmm. But you certainly need to have more variety of exercises. And a decent place to start is that somewhere within the week, you have a horizontal push, a vertical push, a horizontal pull, a vertical pull, some hip hinge, and some squat pattern. And those patterns, I think, can be extra wide as far as what fits into them for a bodybuilder because we don't care so much about performance. So that squat, quote unquote, could be a leg press, could be a hack squat, could be a lunge. Uh, and that hip hinge pattern, while well, most people will be like, oh, RDL, good morning, deadlift, it could be a back extension, you know, it could be a hip thrust. Um, so I think with, with that kind of mindset, we need to distribute uh, these sets within these rep ranges to give an RPE across these movements throughout the week. Uh, and then we can look at some of the meta-analyses we have on frequency and volume for where to start. And we have reasonably good data that would suggest starting around, so for someone like you said, who's very serious about training, wants optimal results and kind of like the 10 plus range number of hard sets per muscle group. Mm -hmm. And we know that it might be ideal to be training each one of these muscle groups at least twice per week, uh, if not more, as we mm -hmm. creep into higher volumes, as higher frequencies are good vehicles for distributing that volume. So now we've, we've, we've taken like this broad range of variables and we've started to tighten it down for hypertrophy. In a microcycle, I need to set it up so that each muscle group gets trained twice per week at least. So now we're starting to look at like upper lower splits, uh, doubled up legs, push, pull, full body splits, mm -hmm. uh, maybe body part splits where you train more than one muscle group, say like chest and back, legs, shoulders, arms, rinse and repeat, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So that nar narrows the, the range a little bit. We know we probably want to distribute the, these 10 sets or more. It's very individual, but there's a decent place to start uh, per exercise, per muscle group out over these multiple days per week. And then each one of the sets that we do to achieve those set targets should be somewhere in the range of say six to 30 it needs to be reasonably hard. So that's kind of the, the answer of what a microcycle looks like based on the data we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll leave it there because I've been rambling for a bit. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good uh, overview. And I guess what I've been curious about is there, there's a lot of hype, I guess, about DUP and mm. sort of looking back into um, just traditional bodybuilders will like to have a heavy and a light day, that sort of organization. And I guess what your thoughts are in terms of that for hypertrophy. Great question. Yeah. So DUP, daily undulating periodization. Um, this is something that came around out in like 1988, created by the ideas of none other in a published journal. In fact, Charles Poliquin, 
uh, for as much hate as he gets about uh, South American avocados. Uh, he has actually had some very, uh, I would argue, positive impacts in, in the SNC world. Um, relatively polarizing figure. Obviously, I don't agree with a lot of the things he would put out there, but just a little piece of trivia. Um, so daily undulating periodization, um, like almost all of the models of periodization, uh, evolved from the original model that goes all the way back to the 50s and 60s uh, that was what's called linear periodization or what came out of Matveyev's uh, models where you would spend large periods of time focusing on one adaptation. So for example, you'd have a multiple month hypertrophy block, multiple month strength block, multiple month power block, and these would be with loads and movements that were increasingly specific for the athlete. Mm -hmm. um, that concept doesn't apply very well to bodybuilding when you think about it. Um, so um, that, that's one little thing that we're going to come back to. But athletes in general have had problems, or theorists, I should say, have had problems with this model because when you spend so long focusing on one adaptation, uh, it's easy to lose prior adaptations. So one of the proposed ways to get around this is what's called undulating periodization, uh, where you still have that overall linear structure, if you will, uh, where you're moving to increase specificity, higher intensities, lower volumes. However, within each one of those phases, you're still doing a little bit of those other foci so that you can retain them. Because it mm -hmm. takes far less to retain an adaptation than it does to make progress in it. Now, that's that's the periodization, which is at a big level. Uh, Dr. Zerdos, Dr. Mike Zerdos, my friend and colleague, and probably the foremost expert in this field of undulating periodization, he likes to coin what we do in the research, at least DUP, as daily undulating programming. Uh, because a lot of what we do on the microcycle and mesocycle scale which by the way, dominates the research. It's very difficult to find periodization studies that are longer than 12 weeks. They're out there, but they're very few and far between because of the nature of research. Mm -hmm. Daily undulating programming is a more apt term when we're talking about these short-term timescales. So what that looks like in the context of resistance training and especially for strength sport and bodybuilding is just using different repetition ranges on different days. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at strength, uh, there's a meta-analysis that came out in, I believe, in 2017 by Williams et al. Uh, that suggested that daily undulating periodization is a little better uh, than your standard linear, especially for trained individuals. But that's strength. And, and the argument might be related to motor learning, uh, getting multiple pathways and adaptations to strength at the same time, uh, and optimizing that process a little bit, maybe better managing fatigue. Um, but for bodybuilding, given we know that a set of six or a set of 20 should be equally stimulative on a set-to-set -set basis, uh, the argument's a little less clear. So we don't necessarily care about the pace that we increase strength. Mm -hmm. Now, there's very little research on periodization for hypertrophy, but there has been a systematic review and a meta-analysis. I both believe I both were, I believe both were by Gurdjieff, uh, and neither one of them found a significant difference between any type of periodization model for hypertrophy. Now, the very surface level obvious conclusion is that periodization doesn't matter for hypertrophy. Uh, but the reality is, is that most of the studies that are meta-analyzed, and, and for, for, for reference to, to you, dear listener, uh, a meta-analysis is a study of studies. So we take all of the research on a given topic, and we put it all together, run stats on it, and that gives us a quantitative answer as to where the direction of the overall body of research leans. So here's the thing. 
the vast majority of periodization research is on performance outcomes, not body composition changes. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say there's almost, there's next to no studies that have been like, hey, let's set up two programs for hypertrophy that we both think have the potential to be optimal and then compare them and then meta-analyze those. Instead, mm -hmm. what's being meta-analyzed is primarily muscular endurance, strength, and power programs. And then seeing as a side effect, oh, they also measured body composition in this one. Okay, which one? had more, more muscle gain. So it's not surprising to me that at this stage of the research where there's not as much research on uh, periodization for bodybuilding, that there's no significant differences between any model. Mm -hmm. So we can't take a whole lot from that. So that means we have to kind of step down that ladder of, of hierarchy of evidence, you know, meta-analysis when done well being the best data. Okay, we got to go back from there and think more theoretically. Mm -hmm. So there is a theoretical argument, and this has been around since the days of Dr. Squat, Fred Hatfield in the 80s, uh, that training in different repetition ranges uh, may stimulate different pathways to hypertrophy. Um, we have seen theorized that uh, metabolic stress may have an additive or, or beneficial effect to hypertrophy. The exact mechanisms to what degree is still up for debate. We're still uncovering this. Uh, at the very least, though, we know that simply being in the presence of metabolic fatigue leads to higher threshold motor unit recruitment. So it's almost like a, you know, a shortcut to, to higher tension levels of the individual fiber as others fatigue out, they have to pick up the slack. That's like the, 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 the least amount of metabolic fatigue having an impact. But there's also theories that, uh, you know, you know, lactate can actually have a stimulative effect. Um, that, uh, you know, higher levels of blood flow and metabolite accumulation uh, can lead to more autocrine and paracrine binding at the sites and lead to more hypertrophy. Um, some of the stuff on blood flow restriction would, would potentially indicate that to be the case. We don't know for sure. But nonetheless, um, there are arguments that different rep ranges may have slightly different stimuli uh, for hypertrophy. And there is mixed data on whether this is true or not. Uh, and if there if there is an impact, it probably has not been observed over the short term. So this isn't something that we would see in, in the short term periods. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, it probably makes sense to at least explore this possibility because there's no downside. So there's a uh, neutral to positive potential outcome from training in multiple different repetition ranges. Um, more so, some movements do not lend themselves to high or low reps. Doing heavy training on certain isolation movements is a great way to get elbow or knee pain. Uh, it's just simply not necessary. Also doing very high rep training on certain compound movements that train the whole body are a great way to induce and dump in a whole bunch of cardiometabolic fatigue that is not necessarily helpful to local muscle, that kind of metabolic fatigue I was talking about before, but just basically making you tired, sweat, out of breath, and getting your heart rate really high to then actually impact your performance on some squid exercises. So, and this is something that you don't need to think about the science to understand. If I told you, hey, I want you to come in and you're gonna do three by 20 at a 10 RPE on squats. And then I want you to do a five by three at a 10 RPE on leg extensions. You'd look at me like I was out of my mind. Why am I doing three rep maxes on leg extensions and set to 20 on, uh, on squats? I'm gonna throw up on the first one and I'm gonna hurt myself on the second one. So I think from a very practical perspective, even if you kind of ignore the whole idea of training in different rep ranges, if you decide to include compound free weight technical exercises as a part of your training and also isolation and machine movements, you're probably gonna end up training across the spectrum.
I probably recommend someone training in the, you know, four to eight or four to 10 rep range on their compounds for, for most of the time. Uh, and then probably in the eight plus rep range on most of their isolation movements. So you can get exposed to that, that, that spectrum. Some would argue, Hey, but what about training in the 30 rep range? If that's still effective. And I'd say, Hey, absolutely. You can have an occasional block focused on that too. I don't think that's unreasonable. So anyway, you can set things up in such a manner with daily undulating periodization uh, that, that, that would, would basically accomplish that. You know, you could have a heavy and a light day, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, and it may be potentially helpful. Um, and as we talk about mesocycles, we could discuss how the definitions of quote-unquote heavy and light can look different. So you can take that same model as an example to kind of prime this conversation. Let's say you got an upper-lower split. You're training in the 4 to 8 rep range on one day and in the 8 to 12 rep range on the other day. Let's say you go into a, another mesocycle. It's overall higher rep. Now that becomes 6 to 10 and uh 10 to 15 you know so it shifts everything up a little bit but you still got a heavier and lighter day relative to one another even though you know everything is a little bit heavier or a little bit lighter in those two mesocycles mm -hmm. yeah no i think that it's a really good discussion and um just understanding sort of the limitations of the research that we have right now um and seeing that there's a lot of um hype about certain things but just you know, understanding, I guess, what basis we're using for our recommendations. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, you set this up perfectly for moving on in our time scales here on, into the mesocycle progression. So how do you like to progress someone throughout a mesocycle in terms of different training variables? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do this. And I think, you know, what, what I like is not necessarily you know, optimal or the only way to do it. So when I share kind of my model, uh, I don't want anyone to think it's necessarily ideal, but I put a high priority on diagnostic uh, assessment. My ability to, to see when I make a change, if that is uh, causing an effect. So I don't manipulate a ton of variables at the same time. I think one misnomer is that a quote unquote scientific approach means that you're incorporating myo reps, uh, you know, you're incorporating uh, rest pause, you're incorporating velocity, you're incorporating RPE, uh, and you're incorporating um, blood flow restriction training. And, you know, every you got a reference after everything and you're, you have like 45 different moving parts. Uh, there, there's this uh, misunderstanding that scientific and complex are synonyms. And it's actually the exact opposite of that. If you want to be following a truly scientific approach, uh, it means you would only be changing one variable at a time because that's the scientific method, being able to actually tell uh, when something is doing something. That's how we determine causation. Um, so not that we can actually determine causation in our training because we don't have a you know identical twin in another universe doing a different training program. But uh, the closest thing we can get to that to improve the quality of our observations as coaches or when working with ourselves is to limit the number of variables we change so that we can isolate what is ideal or what is working for us and experimentally test something. Um, so anyway, the way I like to run mesocycles is that I will make a, a relatively substantial change from the previous, but still bridging it. So for example, that, that, that one I gave you where maybe we're training in the four to 12 rep range for that whole block, I wouldn't jump right into training in the 20 to 30 rep range mm -hmm. uh, because that would probably beat the person up a lot. Um, 
I, I could see an argument being made to say, hey, you know, I'm concerned about, uh, you know, anabolic resistance, like someone getting too used to this and we need to quote unquote shock the system. Uh, I would say there's not good evidence that that's something you need to do or that that's a problem considering we see, you know, power lifters and Olympic weightlifters and bodybuilders who use the same training paradigm continue to make progress. And there's no real evidence to suggest that that is a thing, at least in, in that kind of description. So anyway, um, the way I do it is if I want to move someone towards higher reps or towards lower reps, I will try to bridge that with what I will often call like an introductory cycle, like I discussed earlier, or potentially a deload. Um, so if someone is going to be moving into higher volumes, a deload doesn't really make sense if you think about that. Like, let's say you're going from lower reps to higher reps and more sets. Like you were training a little more power buildery style, and now you're going to be going into a more, more sets, more isolation movements, higher reps, more metabolic fatigue, if that's the kind of the way you're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. If I was to deload from the heavy training, I would become, you know, a little, I would become less fatigued, but I'd also become a little less adapted to handle that workload. But that workload is actually less than what I'm going into because I'm going into a higher workload phase. Mm -hmm. So if I go into that just straight away and I'm banging out an additional set and doing twice as many reps per set, even though the load's lower, um, I'm going to get wrecked and I'm going to have a very difficult time recovering just from that very first week of training, which presumably it would be one of the easier weeks of training moving through that mesocycle. Instead, what I might do is do what's called an introductory microcycle. So that means that first week would be something in the intermediate with the total amount of volume and the rep ranges. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would prepare me for the next week, but it would also be sufficiently low enough to allow recovery from the prior week. And considering I came from a heavy block, probably the aspect that was fatiguing me the most or causing me the most niggles, if you will, would be the absolute loads on the bar, compound movements, and, and some of the other aspects that come from training a little more in a power building fashion. So uh, I might be moving from that, you know, 12 reps and lower into a block of doing say like eight to 15, and then moving into that 12 to 20 rep range after that in the subsequent weeks, ramping up the number of sets to get where I want to go. Um, then within the mesocycle, once I've successfully bridged one mesocycle to the next, changed the focus, I generally for bodybuilding specifically, mm -hmm. I keep rep ranges either fixed or within a relatively tight range. So I might have you go from, you know, 12 to 11 to 10 reps over, over three weeks on a given movement, or I might just have you stay at 12 and increase the RPE. Mm -hmm. uh, typically if I'm, if I'm dropping reps, um, the RPE may not change. Uh, or if I am keeping reps static, then the RPE will typically go up. Um, and number of sets is another option. Uh, typically, if I increase sets from a week to another week, which I do do sometimes, I think there's this misconception now that I've, you know, been on with Mike Isretel a number of times that I just never increase sets within a mesocycle. <laughs> uh, but I absolutely do. That inter introductory mesocycle or microcycle is a specific example of doing that. Um, and sometimes I do have blocks where the goal is I want to build this person up to doing more volume for at least a mesocycle or two. So when I do have a block focused on trying to accomplish more volume, I'll be using uh, exercises that are more machine-based, have less joint stress uh, that you can do without technical error, even in the face of fatigue more often. I'll be using rep ranges that bring the absolute loads down and I will build up sets on a week to week basis. And typically I'm not going to add in the same week two increasing variables. So like if I'm going to go from three sets on everything to four sets on everything or for a specific body part, I'm not also going to go from a seven to nine RPE bracket to an eight to 10. I'll just increase one or the other um, and kind of gradually upload that stress onto the person. 
Um, so that, that's generally how I do it. Um, I'm also very comfortable making exercise selection changes based on the person's preference, um, especially for easier movements. So the more technically complex a movement, if it's our quote unquote bread and butter, if it's a movement that we are normally using to induce hypertrophy, especially a compound lift, uh, I will like to keep that in at least once per week, most of the time to maintain that skill because with high level lifters, uh, high level natural bodybuilders, especially it's very difficult to gauge muscular progress visually, or even with a tape measure, mm -hmm. um, over the time course of mesocycles. So what we can gauge instead is, are we generally seeing progress, uh, which might induce or indicate that we've induced a sufficient overload. So if I'm seeing, you know, squat or bench performance or leg press or, or bar bent over row or whatever, uh, with, with fixed form improving over time. Uh, that's the closest thing I have the confidence that I, that we're, we're actually adapting. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to remove that metric, uh, but it, it takes maybe one set to acclimate to, to bicep curls. If you were doing cable curls, you know, last mesocycle. So I have absolutely no problem if we want to swap, swap those out for, you know, variety joint pain or just psychological enjoyment, um, mm -hmm. as a, as a general comment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, coming back to that, I think it's really interesting how you talk about the, um, the value of being able to measure something whenever you're setting up some sort of program. And I think it's actually kind of underrated, but I think that it should be a variable that people consider within itself in that if you can de design a system that allows you to easily and quickly measure or get feedback on how you're doing, um, I think that's hugely valuable uh, in terms of just be being able to sort of reiterate that process of making small changes to your programming to um, reach to that optimal level. Now, can I can I make one small comment? Um, I totally agree. Obviously, consider I said considering I said that to start this conversation, um, <laughs> there are times where there may be value, especially if you have prior data in changing multiple variables. Um, so a lot of this is coming from the frame of mind that we're exploring what is optimal for a given client or for ourselves, because we don't know that yet. Once you've done that for a while, then you can start to compound some of these variables. So for example, and this is not bodybuilding, but like with Bryce Lewis, uh, in a peaking phase for a meet, I will be reducing volume because he tends to do better with that kind of traditional linear approach going into the meet to reduce fatigue and increase specificity. And I'll be changing the RPE as we get closer to the meet as well and lowering the rep range. So there's a lot of moving parts there. Volume's going down, intensity's going up, RPE's going up, uh, and rep range is going down, right? So he'll be going from doing, you know, five, four, three, to then doing singles. And those singles will then be going from like a six RP to a seven RP, eight RP to to openers and then, you know, a, a taper, which then is a big drop in, in volume while maintaining intensity to then competing. So that is from a decade of working with them. And while all of those variables are scientific and following the general principles of periodization, and that isn't a unreasonable place to start, I would caution someone if they were training a power for the first time to make that process may be a little more homogenous at each one of those points. So they can do exactly what we're talking about and engage, you know, what is working and what isn't, especially prior to getting into a competition phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then 
moving out uh, and zooming out a little bit now that we've talked a little bit about mesocycles, in terms of progression across mesocycles, going from one to the next, how do you like to organize different training variables uh, for a bodybuilder? That's a great question. I think this is where the fun stuff is because it's very, it becomes very theoretical. We yeah. don't really know. We don't have research on it. Um, and we can start to think of ways to take different pathways towards uh, inducing hypertrophy, right? Um, so, you know, you, you can play with going, I'd like to do a couple mesocycles of some very high rep training this year. There's nothing wrong with that, right? And then you would think, all right, well, how do I string these together? I probably don't want to go from doing, you know, fives directly into it. Um, although you could, like I said, if you want to leverage that, that, that concept of anabolic resistance, which I'm, I'm not totally sold on. Um, it'll definitely feel very hard going from fives to 15s. Uh, and you can do that if you want to kind of quote unquote shock the system. But, um, but I, I could see there being a phase where you do some heavy training, uh, a phase where you do some very high rep training, you know, in 20 to 40 rep range. And then that might be a quarter of your year. You know, you might spend three months doing that. And the rest of it is more or less just kind of putting in the hours, you know, and doing more bread and butter stuff. And then you think, well, how do I, how do I all connect those dots, right? Uh, where would I want to have one in front of the other? So like I said, I like to kind of build into things. Um, and for me, I don't do a ton of like, let's do a 30 to 40 rep block. I do do higher volume, higher rep blocks and, you know, lower volume, more compound movements, kind of that power building esque esque block as well. Um, but I don't, I think, I don't think that's very novel or revolutionary or very interesting. I think people could understand how to do that from what I said previously, you know, using introductory mesocycles to go to higher volume, using deloads to go to lower volume, ramping up and ramping down the rep ranges, making small changes to exercise selection, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think people understand how to make that transition. But another interesting thing that I think I like to do when I'm specifically working with physique athletes is I do specialization blocks. Hmm. Um, so more often than not, uh, at a certain level, you will notice that a given body part uh, is either a weak point or it is something you need to focus on because of your structural limitations. Uh, so an example I like to give here is that you might have great delts and great lats, but if you have a wide waist, um, you're going to need to make them even greater to, to kind of offset that. Uh, an athlete wouldn't do that because they don't necessarily care about the visual proportion of their waist to shoulders. If, if they have a sport that is dominated by the need to have strong, uh, well-developed delts and, and lats, let's say they're, they're a rower, uh, or, or they're an Olympic weightlifter, or, you know, um, whatever, like, I don't care. Like I have, I got, I have well-developed delts. That's I'm, size is not my issue, you know, for my strength, it's something else. But for a bodybuilder, you may have huge delts, wide waist. Okay, we need to do more delt specialization. We need to, you know, make the rich richer, if, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so what that often looks like is we'll go through a phase where we take volume down on most other muscle groups, uh, reduce the, the amount number of exercises for them, total number of sets, and we'll take one or two muscle groups that we need to focus on. And for a mesocycle or two, we're going to really emphasize those. So what I often do is I have kind of our, our bread and butter blocks. And then for maybe depending on how much a weak point they are, how advanced the lifter is, uh, I'll take the person through two, three, maybe four mesocycles a year where we are focusing 
a lot more on their weak points. Uh, you mm -hmm. could look at that as almost like an alternating fashion. Like you have a more balanced block, then you can have a specialization block, balanced block, specialization block. And then you can mix that with the concept of higher and lower lower loads. So for example, uh, you could go from you know heavy loads to lighter loads and higher reps to then doing two cycles of heavy loads specialization on your weak points, lighter load specialization on your weak points, and then back to more general, heavier, lighter for, for the whole body, focus on a different muscle group, or simply, you know, uh, go back to that same, same weak point, depends on the individual. Um, hmm. That's what I do the most of. And I think uh, some other factors are very individual dependent. Uh, do they have concurrent goals? A lot of the bodybuilders I work with also are interested in strength. Um, a lot of the bodybuilders I work with have very different personalities from one another because they are in fact humans. Uh, <laughs> so some of them will will want more variety. Uh, some of them will need to have periods of lower training stress when their, their job is more stressful during exams uh, because of having a child. And then we'll have purposeful periods where we're thinking about okay, what's like the minimum amount we can do to make progress uh, with the minimum amount of time investment? How can we be maximally efficient? Things like that. Uh, or we'll have to deal with injuries. You know, we might need, might need a block where we're doing VFR isolation movements, uh, like isometrics and, and, and to work around something like that. So I think there's the, the theory of, hey, let's do some really high reps, some moderate reps, some low reps and some super heavy training, maybe some eccentrics and then some blood flow restriction. Uh, and then do some body part specialization. That looks really fun and exciting, I think. And you start there, but what often ends up happening is you have like a recovery block from an injury. Uh, you have, you know, a period where it's vacation and holidays and it's about how do we get the most bang for our buck for the least amount of time investment. Uh, and then we might have a specialization block, the high rep block, the low rep block, et cetera. So that's kind of how it ends up panning out. Mm -hmm. So... It's interesting that uh, hearing that bodybuilders might actually be humans after all. I mean, they strive not to be, which, which, I, which, I, which I commend them on, just being input-output machines, but, uh, but ultimately they can't escape the reality. Yeah, so what's your thought on the optimality of, like, theoretically of using metabolite blocks um, versus just not, and the idea of one becoming... Um, resistant or adapted to metabolic type training. Yeah, I think I, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So, I, so, so first off, I don't think you're going to be uh, leaving anything on the table by not doing, or sorry, by, by, by doing uh, high rep blocks and, and focusing more on, you know, the pump, the burn and, and accomplishing a lot of, a lot of work and in, in a, in a small density of time. Um, but I think we also need to be very aware that we're dealing with multiple theoretical mechanisms that are unproven here, right? Mm -hmm. So, so first, uh, there's not a strong case of kind of anabolic resistance in the way we think about it. Um, we basically only have one study I'm aware of uh, where it looked at people training for six weeks, taking three weeks off, training for six weeks, taking three weeks off, repeating that, and another group training continuously. And I think there were an untrained individuals and it was for six months. Um, so very different population than the bodybuilders who are using this strategy. And essentially, they got to the same place. Now, a very charitable interpretation of that uh, would be if they continued that study out and the group that took the time off and came back was able to maintain that same 
slope of their curve of gains, they would eventually outpace the group that was, you know, gaining at that kind of logarithmically slow pace uh, training continuously. But I don't think we were observing some way of short circuiting anabolic resistance. I think all that we're observing is people regaining prior adaptations at an increased pace. I think mm -hmm. if you zoomed out far enough, it would eventually have that same logarithmic curve. Um, so I, I don't think we're, we're, we're really, really observing per se uh, the concept of anabolic resistance. We're just observing the absolute level that someone's at relative to their maximum capacity of gains and seeing that as you get closer and closer to it, it's an asymptote meaning that as you get closer to the maximum amount of gains you can have in any given adaptation, it slows down. So by detraining it, you're just allowing it to speed up before it then slows down again. And you're not actually gaming the system per se, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so not, so I mean, that, that's, that's the closest thing that we have to saying, hey, anabolic resistance, that's something we need to worry about with resistance training. Uh, and it doesn't really make a ton of sense from the perspective of said the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. Um, if, if it is true that we need to have specific training to get a specific outcome, the idea of being resistant to the specific adaptation would mean that the best way to do things is to just kind of randomly change it. And I think there is importance and variation from, you know, avoiding injury and managing load and psychologically staying engaged. Um, and I do encourage all of that. Um, but the idea that uh, you don't want to adapt to doing the same thing is completely counter to physiology. Hypertrophy is the adaptation. Um, and then we have to increase the stimulus to keep, to keep making progress. Uh, we don't necessarily need to inherently change the stimulus uh, if that is what's producing it in the first place. So that's kind of my, my questioning of the concept of anabolic resistance, at least in the way it's colloquially discussed. The second one, I want to go back to the concept of metabolic uh, stress as a mechanism of hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is very, very difficult to study. Um, and it's, it's a challenging thing to, to, to confidently say that it is actually the accrual of metabolites uh, that results in uh, hypertrophy when you're doing high rep training, because high rep training is still using mechanical tension. I think we think of quote unquote mechanical tension as high loads equals more tension on the muscle, but the way it actually works when you zoom in to the individual uh, myofiber or sarcomere is that they're getting recruited in a somewhat non-uniform manner. And as certain fibers are unable to keep producing force or if they're dominant, they fatigue and then other ones take over. Uh, for example, there was this really novel study that came out that looked at glycogen and different muscular deposits or depots, I should say. Uh, they looked at subsarcolumal, uh, they looked at uh, in intramyofibular, uh, and they looked at, um, uh, I think just below, I can't remember the, the third location, or, or yeah, sorry, near, near, near the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Mm -hmm. So these different depots of, 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 uh, of glycogen, and they also looked at different fiber types, and this is the more important part is that after weight training, there were some type two fibers that were almost completely depleted of glycogen, even though at the whole muscle level, glycogen is only depleted say 30 to 40%. So this indicates that there's a non-uniform use and fatigue rate of fibers. So those fibers that were down to next to no glycogen levels, that means other fibers were gonna have to pick up the slack, quote unquote. So when you do a set of 40 or a set of 30, 
those fibers that are now active after other ones have dropped out are experiencing a high level of, of tension. So high rep training, low rep training, no matter how you do it, mechanical tension is still uh, the primary mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have, like we have some like in vitro, you know, data, like showing that lactate added to a cell culture induces hypertrophy. But if you ever talk to any researchers in that area, you know, you could add almost anything to a cell culture and it will, it'll have a change. It's, it's very different than in vivo research. So I'm absolutely open to the idea that, uh, that metabolic stress is a pathway to hypertrophy. Um, I think it probably is at least in, at least in that manner of it resulting in higher threshold motor unit recruitment. And it may be more, um, but it's probably not like independent uh, of resistance training. So it's, so it's very difficult to say that metabolite, you know, quote unquote metabolite training uh, or doing, you know, high rep work is essentially what it, what it works out to with low rest periods is actually leveraging metabolic stress than, than more normal training. Um, here's an interesting perspective that people don't often think of. If you ask yourself the question, what produces more metabolic stress per rep, a set of five or a set of 20? The answer is a set of five, because each one of those reps is much more challenging. It's going to move slower. It's going to require more recruitment. So of course you can't do a set of five at a five rep max for a set of 20, because it's your five rep max. So yes, by training with light load, you can induce more total metabolic stress. But are we actually sure that the local uh, stress specifically is that much higher when we do a set of 20 versus at a set of 12 to failure? I'm not confident that it necessarily is, or that it's a huge difference, um, or even that, that it's going to be like really important. So I think if we go all the way back to say that the 2010 paper by Schoenfeld, uh, where he said, Hey, we, here are the three uh, ways that we think that hypertrophy is, is induced mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. What came out of that was a whole bunch of people who started trying to apply that theoretical mechanistic paper into an applied strategy of we're going to have a tension block, a damage block, and a metabolic stress block. Mm -hmm. But that is, a, I think that's a, that's a grossly inappropriate application of, of that paper and those concepts, because it is actually a paper that says, here's what happens when you resistance train, you know, like you, you can't not induce muscle damage with, with progressive overload. You can't not induce metabolic stress to some degree as, as you're training as well. Um, so they aren't distinct, they're interdependent. Uh, and it's almost impossible to disentangle them and know whether one is corollary or one is actually causative and to what degree. And also by presenting them as these three mechanisms, it makes you think they're three equal mechanisms uh, rather than seeing one might be slightly additive, but one is predominant, which is probably the case with mechanical tension. So nonetheless, I think <laughs> to answer your question, um, metabolite training is absolutely something that's totally fine, given that we know that hypertrophy can be induced in a variety of rep ranges. Um, but it is 100% not something you must do. Uh, and there's very little data to suggest that you need to do it or that it would be optimal to do it. And anyone claiming that uh, is you know, stating an anecdote or, or their interpretation of theory, but it shouldn't be taken as, uh, as anything definitive. Um, but why not? It's certainly something to explore. Why not explore higher rep ranges, especially if you haven't done it? Uh, it may be a pathway to, to hypertrophy that it might be a little untapped that you're, you're not adapted to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That great, great points. And I think 
it's like the beautiful thing about bodybuilding is that we have this freedom, you know, to try things out. And I was, I love to use the analogy of saying that your body's a laboratory and you can really try things out. And it's sort of the luxury of um, being in, in physique sports. I totally agree. Moving and I on. Think most yeah. importantly, it, it makes you more engaged. So um, if you're someone who really does like, like your training is always the same or not always and not completely, but it's very similar and you stay in your comfort zone. That's fine. So long as it's progressive, if that, if that gives you motivation, it gives you confidence. If it's kind of like your, your, your little safe space, you know, um, if that's the way you like to do it and you like to keep it consistent and, and really just measure progress, uh, all good. But if you're someone who likes more variety, if you're someone who can get uh, stagnant uh, mentally, you, you have trouble bringing the same level of intent if you don't have some kind of variation, both of those paradigms and personalities can work just as well uh, in bodybuilding based on what we know. So you can, like you said, you can treat it like a, a very active laboratory or you can treat it like a very sterile laboratory where you're pretty much just testing one hypothesis and improving this, increasing the stimulus over time, or you can have metabolite blocks, high rep blocks, eccentric training, uh, you know, machines, free weights. Um, I think so long as you're meeting the big, big picture tenets of what we know induces hypertrophy, you're not going to be leaving anything on the table in either case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So zooming out a little bit and starting to bring in the uh, nutritional interventions as well. Um, in terms of someone who is going through a massing phase, what kind of rate of gain do you like to see? Good question. So I was actually a part of two theoretical papers on this. One was led by Slater and colleagues, and another one was led by my, my colleague, Juma Araki. Uh, one was targeted at bodybuilders, and one was targeted at more general exercise science and, uh, and athletes. So we recommended a slightly faster rate in the general athletes one um, for the realities of bodybuilding in that bodybuilders, they're getting on stage, they actually have to diet all the body fat off that they gain in the off season. And uh, they're exclusively focused on gaining muscle. Um, so the rate of muscle gain uh, that they can have is probably gonna be a little less because they're more trained. Uh, mm -hmm. Athletes will often go through periods of gaining muscle and losing it in the off season phases and then in the competition phases, even in sports that are relatively, uh, that, are, that are impacted a lot by muscle mass. Um, because even like I talked about that example of Bryce Lewis, we can't maintain the same level of non-specific higher rep, higher volume of training as we get closer into, into meet time. And if he has, you know, three meets in a, you know, six month period, that means that maybe only half of those six months are actually be having sufficient volume to, to maintain muscle and even build it. Um, so there's a period, whether you're an American football player uh, or whether you're a power lifter or an Olympic lifter, where you're probably going to be losing uh, some of the muscle mass that you gain in the off season. Meaning that when you are focused on muscle gain again, you can see some pretty rapid gains getting back there. So in that paper by Slater and colleagues, uh, you know, we select, we, we suggested, you know, different sizes of surpluses uh, and they're similar to what we suggested for novice and intermediate bodybuilders in the paper with Iraqi and colleagues. And the general rate of gain uh, that seems to provide the best ratio of lean mass to fat mass, um, not the absolute most muscle mass. So like if you don't care about gaining fat mass at all, like let's say you're like a center uh, and you're playing football. Well, let's say you're a sumo wrestler 
you would ignore however much fat mass you gain. You're like, look, I just want to gain whatever gains the most muscle mass and you can increase this rate. But if you're trying to get the best ratio of lean to fat mass gains, uh, this is probably going to be, uh, you know, as much as one to 2% of your body weight per month. Um, and if you're or close to 2% of your body weight per month, and if you are an advanced bodybuilder, it's probably closer to that, that 1% mark. Um, so that's, that's not fast, you know, um, and people will often contrast that with what they've heard for fat loss, which is like, you know, 1% of your body weight per week, you should try to lose as kind of like a general recommendation you'll see in sports nutrition. Uh, the difference though, is that you are rate limited at how much muscle mass you can gain at any given time. And it doesn't just have to do with your calorie consumption. It has to do with whether or not you're providing a stimulus to induce hypertrophy, which is everything we talked about with training. So assuming you're doing training right, and then you approach your surplus with the appropriate size, you know, so that you're gaining, as like I said, intermediate or novice, 2% of your body weight per month versus slower than that as an advanced lifter. Um, you can expect there to be substantial fat gain in the process. Uh, you know, uh, so anecdotally, uh, my clients at 3DMJ, most of them are competitive bodybuilders, uh, our clients in general, I should say. Um, if we have them gain, let's say two pounds a month for six months, that's, you know, roughly 12 pounds on the scale. A chunk of that's food weight, chunk of that's glycogen, chunk of that's water. Um, but maybe half of it's fat, you know, which means, I mean, if you look at that just in terms of objective numbers, like, oh my God, three pounds of glycogen and water, six pounds of fat and only three pounds of muscles, not doing it right. It's like, well, three pounds of muscle is a lot mm -hmm. on a five foot eight natural bodybuilder who's been training for 10 years, you know? So I think that's something to, to, to consider um, in that we have to have realistic expectations based on where we are and where we think we can go. Um, so anyway, that's the answer to your question is that your rate of your rate of weight gain is is primarily dependent on your your training age and the proximity to your that asymptote I talked about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then uh, what comes out of this, I guess, is what are your thoughts on optimal length of massing phases, um, and sort of the minimum maximum lengths? Yeah, I think that's just very much dependent on how low your body fat started and and how high it gets. Um, there is, uh, this, I would say a misconception, um, that being leaner allows you to gain more muscle, uh, or have leaner gains. Uh, and this comes from old research on what's known as like the P ratio, uh, which is when you observe, uh, lean people who overfeed versus, uh, people higher in body fat who overfeed to gain a greater proportion of lean mass versus fat mass. Uh, this isn't done in resistance training populations. Uh, it's not been done in the long term, uh, and it doesn't hold true when you've dieted first. You know, when we observe bodybuilders post show, when they overfeed, they're the leanest of anyone. Uh, yet they predominantly gain body fat in vast amounts in addition to glycogen and food weight, uh, and that's because the process of getting lean uh, changes your hormonal environment such that you're in a terrible place for gaining muscle. So this kind of notion online that you need to get to like 8% body fat as a male before then to have this amazing bulking phase, I, if anything, you're just setting yourself up to rapidly get to 12% and then start making better gains yeah. <laughs> once your testosterone's normalized, once you can actually sleep through the night, uh, and once your strength has been regained, you know? Um, 
So I think that's really important. Anyone who's gone through a contest prep and has been honest with themselves at the weight they've gained post prep uh, knows that to be the case, at least especially in that natural bodybuilding um, where you're dealing with those, those hormonal changes instead of, you know, taking exogenous hormones. So, uh, so I think that's something to consider. So the whole idea that if your body fat gets too high, it suppresses the ability to gain muscle mass is not something that's, 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 that's proven. Uh, and I would say there's actually a ton of indirect evidence that makes that seem a little bit just hard to believe if you think about it. Um, like I talked about a center in, in, in American football, I talked about sumo wrestlers. Sumo wrestlers carry more lean body mass than any other athlete on the planet. That shouldn't be possible if, if they would get increasingly less and less and less muscle mass as they gain more body fat. Uh, super heavyweight powerlifters, super heavyweight weightlifters, football players, all of these anecdotes make that a very difficult one. That's a very difficult circle to square, if you will, um, when you think about that. Also, the perspective on where you actually start to see uh, mechanistic negative impacts on muscle physiology from having very high body fat is skewed. Um, if we, like I said, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to get to eight or 10% body fat. But uh, if you look at some of the research that's out there, I remember there, there being a paper where they compared people with obesity to people who were quote unquote normal body weight and looked at their response to protein. And the people with obesity, uh, these males, I believe, uh, they had a poorer response in terms of muscle protein synthesis to protein. But the thing that everyone missed is that the quote unquote normal males were 20% body fat on average. Hmm. So what is considered normal among bodybuilders and the point where we might expect some negative effect is heavily skewed downward to these arbitrary numbers of around 10% for a male or you know, 18% for a female. Um, and more importantly in that study is they weren't resistance training. So why we expect non-trained uh, individuals with obesity to, uh, who, who are not getting a normal response to protein to inform something like, oh, we need to be 10% to, to have a successful gaining phase uh, is, is something that I think is, is one of those things that's stated in the evidence-based community, but it actually has contrary evidence. Uh, and it's very difficult to defend. Uh, it's probably actually counterproductive to advise uh, because you have a lot of people thinking they need to constantly cut before they can do a gaining phase. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's kind of my thoughts on that. There is no practical limit on how long a gaining phase should go for. Um, I do think that the faster you gain, the more of that will be body fat. So you will necessarily have to do more frequent cutting and you can look at this and go, okay, well, what am I in a, in a tortoise versus the hare scenario here? If I'm gaining at a fast rate, if I'm, you know, going up at I'm gaining a pound a week. I'm getting four pounds a week. How soon until I will need for logistical reasons for my next contest prep to cut this off season? Okay, I compete at let's say 170. It's not me. This is a hypothetical person, and I'm gaining four pounds a month, and I'm currently uh, 180. So I'm 10 pounds over stage weight. Let's say I just had my kind of like post contest main feeding period, and now I'm at a, at a stable but pretty lean off season. Mm -hmm. In four months, I'll be 26 pounds over stage weight. Okay, that, that's fine. Um, probably the heaviest I'd want to be before dieting down. Okay, in another four months, I would be 38 pounds over stage weight. That's almost a contest prep and a half now that I have to do. Mm -hmm. So that means necessarily every three or four months, I've got to do a mini cut. That's not too bad. 
you know? Um, but if you go faster than that, now you're looking at a scenario where you almost have to spend a third of the year in the off season cutting just so that you start your prep at a, at a reasonable place. So I think that's kind of the calculus you need to think of as far as what's the limit to amassing phase is okay. At what pace should I be at? And given that we know a calorie surplus uh, of a higher level, it gives a d- diminishing advantage uh, in terms of the research we have. And that simply not being in a deficit is probably the best thing we can do for gaining muscle. We don't need large surpluses to gain muscle pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. And as a bodybuilders, we already have a lot of muscle mass relative to what we can accomplish if we've been in the game a while. So smaller surpluses and extended periods of gaining probably makes more sense uh, than being aggressive and having to mini cut you know, for, for a third of the year. So I would say anywhere in say the at, at most 2% of your body weight gain per month range to lower than that, depending on your, your training age for as long as is appropriate before you have to then bring your body fat back because you have a contest prep ahead of you, I think is totally fine. Mm-hmm. If um, I may actually, Birdo actually has some, some good guidelines here. You know, being say 10% over stage weight, if you have to compete the subsequent year, you know, 15 to 20% if, you, if you're not going to compete for multiple years from now. So how, how, how high you let your body fat get, gets, which, which dictates the length and the magnitude of your surplus is somewhat dependent on when do you need to be lean? Because you have to think about the time scale of that as well. Yeah, no, great. That basically answered my next question, basically, yeah, which was going to be um, about it, let's say you were farther out from uh, show. So, so yeah, let, let's say we're talking about someone who is, you know, in going to be in a very extended off season, or perhaps they don't even compete at all. What's your recommendation on the use and frequency of mini cuts versus longer cuts? Yeah. If someone doesn't compete at all, I actually don't recommend them following kind of these, these bodybuilder uh, approaches. Um, most people who don't compete want to be able to make progress, enjoy training, improve their body, but for most of the time have a body that they're happy with and they like, and that shows their hard work. And they're trying to be these, you know, recreational bodybuilders. They want to have, uh, that that's, that's display. They might occasionally cut and do like a photo shoot so they can have that as something they look at. Um, but once they've come to the realization and please, I, hopefully they do that trying to be lean all the time is, is not, is both unhealthy uh, and counterproductive towards sanity, health, happiness, uh, and actually gaining muscle, um, they're going to have to figure out like, well, what's a reasonable body fat for me to hang out at? So for, for these people, I think um, hanging around, around just slightly over maintenance most of the time is what makes sense. Now, I'm not going to say like, hey, it's, you should never be cutting. Uh, it's, it's normal throughout human history to go through periods of higher food availability and lower, we can certainly handle and recover from dieting occasionally. Um, but I think for someone who's a, not a competitor, it should be even less extreme. You know, you might spend eight to nine months out of the year in a surplus and then do a couple, couple month cut and then like a maintenance phase and then slowly let your body fat rise again. But basically trying to be in the state of having a body you like most of the time except early on, obviously, that you're, it's going to require you, you know, building a lot of muscle, which may require an extended period, multiple years of investing and just gaining weight. Um, so that's for the non-competitor. Uh, for the competitor in extended off-season, yeah, I think letting yourself get as high as 15%, maybe even 20% over stage weight 
is totally fine. And, you know, that means that let's say you've got a three-year off season. Let's say you just got your pro card uh, in, in July, and then you're able to jump into a show in November and you competed as a pro, got whooped, and you know you need to gain a ton of muscle. So you're not going to compete this next season, right? Uh, so you're going to go, right, I'm going to compete in three years. Uh, so I've got, you know, basically two and a half years of, of, of gaining weight before I then start my diet. Mm -hmm. So for that first year, you would aim to get about, you know, 10% over stage weight. Into that second year, you would aim to get maybe up to 20% over stage weight. And then in year three, where you've got six months before you then start dieting, you do too many cuts to get yourself back down to a reasonable target. Um, this is basically exactly what I did. I competed in 2011 and then in 2019, and I started focusing on bodybuilding again in 2017. Mm. So 2017 and 2018, I was doing primarily hypertrophy training. I let my body weight all the way up to hundred kilos. I competed 80 kilos. So that's 20 kilos over stage weight. I didn't start there though. So in April of 2018, I dropped from hundred to around 94. I did like a one month mini cut. And then I kind of did like a very, very slight surplus, probably mostly maintenance and kind of hung around 94, um, focusing on weak points, uh, trying to gain tain, if you will. And then come October, uh, I'm sorry, September and early October, I dropped to about 90 or 89 and then started feeding back up again, focusing on, on, on weak points and started my diet in, in mid-December. So uh, I made sure that I wasn't in a acutely dieted state when I started prep. I had a couple months of refeeding before I, I started it, but I also didn't want to start my prep at 100 kilos, so 220 pounds to get down to, you know, like 180 pounds. Um, so I think that, that that's useful perspective is that you're going to have to do something about the body fat if you're a competitor, but it's not something you need to deal with, con you know, continuously, or it's not something you have to deal with now uh, if, if you've got uh, the stage in a long off distance, but you don't want to be the person who spends three years gaining a whole bunch of weight and muscle and fat, and then has to diet super hard or super long for, you know, a year, uh, or, or just really, really hardcore for six months and risk losing a lot of what you built to get on stage, uh, because you didn't take it, you know, spend some time, uh, cleaning up if you will, after, after the bulk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just looping back to what you had mentioned earlier about uh, maintenance phase, what are your thoughts about using maintenance phases, um, resensitization phases, which have been mentioned by some people as well? Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I don't think you necessarily need to resensitize yourself to anything. Um, that, that's, that's not the reason why I would have someone do maintenance. I think a lot of it is behavioral. That, that, that's really, really important is that if you're a competitive bodybuilder, you typically only have two modes. You have gaining weight and losing weight. And I think that, especially for extended off seasons uh, and just for having a more healthy relationship with food when you're not in a contest prep mindset is something that is uh, potentially a problem. Um, so understanding how to be in a very, very slight surplus or go through maintaining or maintenance phases, I think is important. Uh, one of the things that I really like that Birdo does, and this is the same thing I did in those like two month period before I prepped, uh, is going through a, uh, a purposeful maintenance phase. Um, so getting to that body fat where you actually want to start prep and eating as much as you can without gaining weight mm -hmm. um, and showing that this is something I can maintain without an issue. Uh, because if you don't have the, the dietary structure, the mindset and the healthy relationship with food to be able to do that at the start of prep, 
it's probably not going to go well when that all starts getting threatened to the process of prep. Um, and, you know, during this phase, you could still make progress. Again, I think a lot of people think of like a surplus as the only way to make muscular progress, but that's not the mm -hmm. case. Body recomposition when you're not super lean happens all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so hanging out at this kind of maintenance phase at a good off-season body fat, but not too lean and not too high in body fat. And then doing, let's say like a specialization cycle, like focusing on, hey, my arms are, are something I need to bring up. So that's acutely beneficial to my contest prep. Um, not as beneficial as doing like a, a more holistic hypertrophy program deep in the off season where I'm overfeeding. But hey, uh, this is the, the best collection of variables at the same time that's gonna set me up for prep. I'm gonna be low in body fat, not gaining any more body fat, hopefully making a little bit of progress in an area that will have disproportionate benefit to me because it's a weak point in my physique and shoring up my behavior around uh, my eating, setting myself up for success than to start my diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense and good points for sure. Um, just keeping an eye on time um, and just sort of easing off of things. Eric, where are you right now in your own uh, training and programming and competition and what's coming up? I'm literally two days out from a powerlifting mate, actually. Um, so yeah, I'm competing on uh, Sunday here in New Zealand. So that'll be Monday in the States and in the Northern Hemisphere in general. Um, and so I am in the middle of a taper. So I have easy training and uh, feeling better by the day and um, looking forward to getting back on the platform. Uh, the, sorry, the weightlifting platform, sorry, the weightlifting platform I've been on the powerlifting platforms for the first time since 2016. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, um, I'm not at my, my peak strength that I was back in, you know, 2014 through 2016. Um, but I am, you know, I can, I've got healthy hips. I had hip surgery back in 2017. I'm, I'm focusing on gaining strength. Um, we're very fortunate here in New Zealand. COVID is not currently causing any lockdowns. So I'm, and we have a new place. So I have a home mm. gym. So I'm actually very hopeful that I can make a dent in my powerlifting goals, which I really haven't been able to uh, because of, you know, hip surgery and then bodybuilding prep and then COVID. So um, I'm now uh, pretty hopeful that 2021 will be a, you know, a good year for me and adding to my total and hopefully cracking the, uh, the 500 pound barrier on my squats and, uh, pushing my squat and deadlift up. So that's me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm training for multiple strength sports most of the time, uh, cause I love Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting and bodybuilding. And I've even done a little bit of strongman, uh, but you know, always just trying to make progress in anything even remotely related to lifting weights. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, it's been cool watching your watching your lifts on Instagram. Um, I, I, I don't follow a lot of people anymore, like in terms of just watching people lift, but just uh, seeing your journey has been really interesting, sort of like this guy's makes it possible, you know? <laughs> oh, thanks, man. That's cool. I appreciate that. That's, that's what I hope to do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think this has been a really fruitful discussion. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to get value out of this and hearing from this uh, V-shaped pillar. <laughs> Thank you for having me, man. It's been a great discussion. I appreciate you giving me the time. Yeah. Where can people find you? Easiest place to find me is at 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D and musclejourney.com. And that has links to my research review with Greg Knuckles, Mike Zerdos, and Eric Trexler. That's got links to the muscle and strength pyramids, my books with uh, Andrea Valdez and Andy Morgan. It's also got links to our podcast, our blogs, which are free. Uh, and then finally, you can find me on Instagram at Helms3DMJ. 
Uh, and from there, you can find links in my bio to Iron Culture, my podcast with uh, Omar Isif, as well as uh, the Sports Nutrition Association for people who are looking to make that a viable career uh, and also continuing education through uh, the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind, where we have monthly webinars, all kinds of fun stuff is all linked to those two places, my Instagram and 3dmuscledreaming.com. Great. We'll put those links in the description. Thanks for being on the podcast, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.